0: Welcome to Resource On The Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. My name is Louis Marvin, and I'm the training specialist at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. This podcast is part of our Male Survivors series. Today, Michael Munson joins me again for part two of a two-part conversation on working with transgender men and transmasculine survivors of sexual assault. Michael is the executive director at Forge, and if you haven't listened to part one, I do encourage you to listen to that first since we're building on some of the conversation um, that we had in that episode today. So welcome back, Michael.
1: It's good to be here again
0: with you. Um, Yeah. So last time we talked a little bit about um, transgender men and transmasculine folks who um, survive sexual assault and um, some of the things that have to do with um, socialization and stigma and different things that advocates should know about, um, about trans men and trans masculine folks. And today we're talking more about services at, at sexual assault centers and I just want to start by talking about support groups. I know that FORGE has done some research on gender-inclusive support groups, so talk about how you did this and some of the things that you found.
1: Um, first of all, I really enjoyed our conversation last time. So that was really fun to like have kind of that um, primer of, of trans men and, and trans masculine folks. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having a discussion today that really dives in more deeply to, to some of the topics that, that advocates and, and other folks might um, find more practical in their, in their work. So you mentioned that we did some research and we did. Um, we were funded, um, we we're so appreciative of the funding through Reliance in 2016, 2017. And we were able to do a really kind of cool process of doing internet-based survey and then following up with around 18 of those people that responded to the survey. We had about hundred people that responded to the survey and then 18 of them we, we found really captivating and we did in-depth interviews with those 18 individuals. So the combination of the survey respondents and the in-depth interviews were all by people who were successfully running gender-integrated support groups. So support groups that included women and men and trans people and non-binary people. So literally any, any gender uh, of anybody was welcomed into their support groups. And we really, we learned a lot in doing this, we, we learned Simple things like it, it wasn't as hard as people thought it was going to be. Um, Because I think a lot of times people think, oh my God, how do I switch from an all women's group and it's usually all women to something that's not all women. And people overwhelmingly found that it was really pretty simple. And the benefits so much outweighed any of the challenges that they, they found in working through and getting buy-in and all of those pieces. So um, I think that's the biggest takeaway from the research that we did. Um, but there, there are some bits and pieces that um, I can share with you that I think are relevant to, to trans men in particular and, and transmasculine folks. And I think the obvious is something that we all know who work in this field of like everyone deserves the support that they want and that they need and for a lot of survivors that's about being together with other survivors. So in COVID it might be being together on Zoom but that process of being together with folks can be so transformational in people's healing that you can't get it another way. You can't get it by one-on-one therapy. You can't get it by reading a publication. You know, it, it really involves that human to human connection with peers. So that's kind of the the preface of everything. And so, you know, our job was to look at how, how can people set up these structures in ways that, feel good for everybody, for both facilitators as well as for participants. So not just trans participants, but for all participants. Um, and so what we, we really kind of looked at and found were that having gender integrated support groups really recognizes the full range of possibilities for people and their identities. So not just about gender, but it said, you know, hey, if we welcome men into the space, if we welcome trans people into the space, who else are we welcoming? So it kind of like opens this door to, we're being an expansive group and that can mean we're expanding in lots of different ways, even though that's not talked about. The other thing that it's critically important for is, is obviously the folks that identify as non-binary don't oftentimes have an option, right? Of going to a women's group or a men's group. So having a gender-integrated gender, gender integrated group really allows the largest portion of the trans community to feel at home in a group. So just the reminder for folks that um, non-binary folks make up about 35% of the whole trans population, whereas trans men and trans women are about 33%. So it's not a huge amount different but it's a substantial amount of people. So that's a cool benefit as well. Some of the other benefits are really about like ensuring that survivors don't feel rejected. So, you know, if somebody wants to access the support group and the agency says, oh, we're for women only, that's gonna be another set of rejections for folks that can't access that group. Um, You know, in, in other ways, this is kind of related to the feeling of rejection, but it's like, how do people feel included? So I think for trans folks in particular, especially trans men who grew up with the things that we talked about last time, which were this, this dominant paradigm that violence and, and sexual assault happens against women. And so when there's, you know, when a trans man has been sexually assaulted, either in childhood or adulthood, he might be wondering, you know, do I fit in with other survivors of any gender? And So having a group that they can be part of really does validate both their experiences and their feelings of isolation. So that's another one of those you know, kind of cool benefits. Um, a couple of other things, if I can just share a couple more things, is that we found that having gender integrated spaces really reduced other forms of stereotyping and assumptions. So if people make assumptions based on gender, what other kinds of assumptions are they making? Maybe about race or disability or religion. And so if people are in this integrated space, can there be these discussions about some of the other things that people might hold you know, as an assumption, as a stereotype, because we all have them. And sometimes we don't even know that we have them until we start to talk about them or people share their experiences. And so those stereotypes kind of come out then. So it's very beneficial around gender, but it can also have these perks around what else people might be holding that they they didn't know about. Um, We also found that people were able to learn new skills. And they were able to recognize sexual assault. They were able to recognize abusive behavior in different ways. Um, When folks are in groups that are of like-minded people, they may not see other ways of coping. They may not experience what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes, you know? And so by being in these spaces, it allows folks to see well, this person is healing in this other way. Well, what is that like? Can I hear that? Can I experience that too? Maybe I should look into that. Um, and it also inc- it encourages people to think about, well, what is sexual assault? What, is, what, what are healthy relationships? What does that look like when it's coming from a trans man's perspective? Um, is it the same as coming from a non-trans, you know, white woman's perspective? You know, what, what are the differences and what are the similarities? And how can people learn from each other? Um, because people can learn from each other and that's I think one of the the benefits in general about um, having support groups and the, the last thing I wanted to share um, really briefly to summarize you know this this fairly large project is that the facilitators really felt that they benefited um, as facilitators in this process of having gendered Graded spaces for all the reasons that we just talked about, and you know a lot of other reasons as well. So it really was a benefit to the survivors, who is the primary audience for the support group, obviously. But it also benefited the facilitators, and then when the facilitators feel more comfortable, it obviously then helps them be better facilitators in other groups. So yeah, it was it's really exciting research. It
0: was fun. That is so exciting. I love the observation that um, that there were there was this connection of so hey we're being a gender expansive space and that just leads to um, that intention and kind of doing that work around being expansive in terms of um, gender led to just an overall mindset of being expansive in a lot of other ways too I think that is really exciting Um, and you know something that comes up a lot in the project that we're working on we're talking really broadly about you know how advocates can work with male survivors of sexual assault and um, you know, so often we we want to highlight ways in which rethinking things or doing things in maybe a new way um, to to reach male survivors, hopefully, is something that is you know can lead to new ways of doing things that benefit um, lots of survivors. So um, yeah, we definitely don't want to say like change change everything you're doing for men, um, but we do want to say like when when you engage in some of this rethinking, what are what are their other benefits. Um, And so I think you've really highlighted that in in a really exciting way. So thank you. And um, I know you've also done a lot of work around trans men and trans masculine folks running into the the issues related to gatekeeping. So I definitely want to uh, focus on that today. And so first, if you could just tell our audience, uh, what do we mean by that term? What is gatekeeping? And then how does gatekeeping impact a sexual assault survivor? For example, what What should advocates understand about gatekeeping and how it relates to um, trans men and trans masculine survivors
1: it's a great question and it's something that i think folks don't oftentimes talk about and don't oftentimes know what it is unless if they're really familiar with trans folks Um, so gatekeeping is literally what it sounds like it's you know somebody else is kind of holding the gate shut and you have to pass the magic test in order to walk through the gate so to be less magical about it, Um, for trans folks, a lot of times, if trans folks want to access or need to access hormones or surgery or name change or other um, transition-oriented or gender-affirming care, the way our system has been set up is that people need to get a letter from a therapist or a letter from a doctor that says, oh, I've deemed that your, your mental health is okay enough for you to take these other steps. So this is a huge systemic issue. And I, I, I don't wanna come down on either side of the gatekeeping model because you know, it, it started from a really good place and a good intention with the Harry Benjamin standards of care. And it, that's morphed into the WPATH standards of care and now into some other informed consent models. So it, it, it started in a really good place of trying to protect trans people, as well as trying to protect the providers um, who might've been getting some pushback about what they were doing and some, some legal challenges because of that. So it may have started from a good place, but it's really gotten transformed into like this gatekeeping uncomfortable process what is systemic about it i'll probably use the word systemic a lot because there are lots of ways that are keeping this process in place so one of them is really our insurance companies so for folks that are um that have insurance which obviously is not everybody and for folks that have insurance that covers trans-related care which is not everybody so if you have insurance and it covers trans-related care most of the time insurance companies are going to require that letter from a therapist in order to access hormones. Um, A surgeon is not gonna engage in in gender-affirming surgery if they don't have a letter from a therapist and a physician. So the system or the systemic challenges are not just, oh, this therapist believes this, or, oh, this physician believes this. It's, I want my insurance company to pay for this procedure because I don't have $20,000 or, you know, pick the, the dollar amount. And so the gatekeeping is kind of self-perpetuating in that process. So even if a provider is really invested in informed consent, those insurance companies are kind of holding that in balance, the the gatekeeping in balance. So if we look at this, if we kind of, you know, broaden our scope or, or, or narrow our scope, when we look at any kind of provider, we know that there's like a power imbalance. I mean, anytime a survivor I think is seeking services, there's inherently a power imbalance. When we add that gatekeeping kind of on top of it, there's like this heightened sense of power imbalance of, you know, what if I say certain things to this provider, are they still going to be able to write me a letter so that I can have life saving gender affirming care in my medical, you know, transition in, in my legal name change in whatever it is that I want to pursue as a trans person. So a lot of times what seems to be happening is people are choosing to have more than one therapist So they're picking a therapist that they can do gender-based stuff with, get their letters get their get all their process stuff with and then they're choosing a separate therapist for their trauma And while that's in you know inherently not necessarily a bad thing, what's oftentimes, happening, what we're seeing is that folks are not sharing their trans history with a trauma-based therapist. And again, there's nothing wrong with doing that if that's what somebody wants to do, if that's an affirming thing for them is, you know, to not discuss their transness, that's cool. But for a lot of folks, that doesn't take into consideration their whole self, their whole body, their whole childhood experience, which might be in a different gender. So having that split really challenges people's healing and really fragments folks in ways that they may not have been that fragmented beforehand, but in seeking care, they've ended up more fragmented because of how they're trying to navigate those systems. So those are some of the rules around gatekeeping. Um, Like I said, there's some some standards of care that are a little bit more liberal, but then we go back to those systemic uh,
0: challenges. Yeah, yeah, thank you for for laying that out and um and describing it for for advocates who are maybe wanting to be intentional about not um participating or perpetuating some of the negative consequences of standards of care or to not do gatekeeping um what are some of the things that advocates could um, could do to to challenge that paradigm and to be um, welcoming to folks who, who do want to share more of themselves in, um, in a trauma-related space?
1: Yeah, good question. So um, I think when we look at at advocates, um, and I know I was really talking more about therapists in kind of the, the presentation about what gatekeeping is, but a lot of times advocates are therapists or um, therapists are advocates. So there is a blending of those two things. And advocates are oftentimes that intermediate intermediary person, right, of of connecting survivors to um, other mental health care providers. So I think some of the things that, that advocates can do and anybody working with a survivor can do is to really make sure that they're up to date on who trans folks are and have that educational foundation that they can work off of. So, you know, get informed, Um, listen to Forge's webinar trainings, not to self promote, but like, you know, that we have like 70 hours worth of training. So it's, there's no um, barrier for advocates to get access to trans-informed care and and what they can do. So get informed is, is I think, number one. Ideally, trans um, advocates for trans folks would also have trans-affirming providers on their referral list. So if an advocate is going to you know, suggest a service, whether it's mental health service, a support group, um, you know, even if it's a yoga group or something that's you know, non-traditional but really, really helpful in healing, does that advocate know what the policies are um, of that organization that they're referring out to, what their trans policies are? Do they know about that, that therapist and what their feelings are about trans folks and how welcoming they are? You know and I, I think also kind of related to that ideally advocates would work with survivors and help survivors navigate finding providers or navigate finding you know the the skills and the things that they need and you know either helping share their trans data with other people if that's desired by the trans person or helping protect it if that's not desired you know if, if they don't want to disclose but having that that advocate do the job of being an advocate can be about the trans piece as well as about a survivorship piece or, or another component of their life.
0: Yeah, thanks for, thanks for laying that out. Um, and you're saying all kinds of things that connect to something else that I wanted to ask you about. Um, talking about the survivor or the advocate as an intermediary and so forth, and that makes me think of. Um, the forensic exam setting, um, which is a really important setting for um, for us to talk about in the context of working with with trans survivors. So how can advocates better support trans survivors, particularly trans men and trans masculine survivors in that forensic exam setting?
1: Yeah, I love this question. I love talking about forensic settings. Um, and, I, and I think I do because it's it's a, I don't wanna say it's an advanced topic, but it's, it's a topic that's really intimate. Um, it's really about bodies it really has a lot of different components to it than when we talk about trans folks just in general. So, I mean, this has some some very specific ramifications that we can talk about today or that people can learn more about in, in general. Uh, you know, I think I wanna start by saying that I think that forensic nurse examiners, so not advocates, well, advocates do, but forensic nurse examiners tend to really get it. Um, they tend to do their work really well in a way that is trans-affirming in and of itself by asking open-ended questions, by, by listening to people's bodies, by watching body language, by reflecting language, um, by, I guess by not making assumptions, uh, you know, so so sayings tend to be really, really kind of an open book of like, I'm gonna listen carefully, I'm gonna reflect what I hear, I'm gonna see the survivor and what happened to them in a way that that doesn't have any assumptions about it. So I just wanted to start with that piece of it because the advocate is there, you know, supporting the survivor within that interaction with a a SANE or a forensic nurse examiner. So I think that that's a helpful thing. So in in some respects, I don't wanna say it's gonna be an easier advocacy role, but because the SANE's are so good at what they do most of the time, it does make an advocate's job a little bit easier. Um, So I think of the, the survivors who do wanna pursue forensic care and obviously there's some challenges in looking at that because of how many trans folks have had negative experiences with medical providers, with law enforcement. I think a lot of people think that there has to be law enforcement involved if they go for forensic exams. We oftentimes know that people that actually make it through the door are making it through the door to get a sexual assault-related forensic exam, but they're also gonna have to see other people. So I think this is where the advocates can play a really good role. So, you know, I think most, most places people are having to see like an ER physician, emergency room physician, or maybe there's you know a person that's cleaning the hallway that they have interactions with or a person that takes their insurance card um, if they're going to like a hospital setting. So there's there are people that, that trans man or that trans masculine person is gonna have contact with that the advocate could help navigate some of those situations because the survivor's in a state of crisis and that's like just an, an, an extra irritant that doesn't need to happen. So when we look at what advocates can actually do. Um, We want to keep in mind, obviously, that we want to be survivor-centered when we're working with folks. And what does that mean when we're working with trans men and transmasculine folks? We want to make sure that we ask that survivor in some way, how would you like me to advocate for you? What is it that you would like me to do? And sometimes that conversation might not look like that, or it might be just saying that. And the person says, well, I don't want you to do anything, or I just want you to hold my hand. but that trans survivor could say, "You know what? Like I just I don't have any spoons to come out to anybody else as trans. Could you do that for me?" Or the trans survivor might say, "I want to tell my story. Do not tell anybody that I'm trans. I want to be the one that, that initiates that discussion. So obviously, whatever that trans survivor is saying is you know what the advocate hopefully will will follow and do. But a lot of times it does really relieve the burden. If that trans man, that trans masculine survivor, knows that that advocate is going to have their back and do what it is that they've, you know, kind of asked them to do, so that's just one example of where advocates can play, you know, a, a pretty substantial role um, in relieving some of the the extra burden for folks.
0: That's great, thank you. Um, yeah, really tapping into some skills that we talk about in working with any survivor. Kind of like how you're talking about with the saints. you know, an advocate provides options and listens. And um, so, yeah, I love making that connection to, well, that's what you do for um, and with a trans survivor as well, of course, and it might mean specific things. Um, So yeah, that's great. So we're we're talking um, a lot about um, advocates in different settings and, um, we know that advocates just in general really want to be helpful to survivors. That's that's why people do this work, of course, right? And um, so, but thinking about that, what are some of the ways that you've seen or heard advocates who've had these really right or good intentions around working with a trans man or a trans masculine survivor but they actually had a negative impact on the survivor despite this really good intention so do you have any anecdotes around how um, even though there may have been a really good intention and there's maybe been an enthusiastic um, advocate wanting to to do all this great stuff for trans male survivors um, but didn't quite uh, do that and maybe had a negative impact i think that could be really instructive for our audience to to hear from you about?
1: That's a really cool question too, because I think that sometimes people are really like excited, like, oh, I get this, I'm, I'm you know, I've, I've had training, I know what to do. And then they end up focusing like way too much on somebody's transness. And I think that's probably what we see more often than anything of that, you know, like, I'm good with talking about trans stuff, let's talk about your trans stuff. And that is not why somebody is seeking an advocate. That's not why somebody is, you know, going to a forensic, you know, exam it's not about their transness, it's about what happened to them. So I think that the the overexcitement that can happen sometimes by advocates who know a little or know a lot can really kind of do some damage and some harm to to trans folks. Um, So I think that's probably like the biggest thing that we see is just people that want to be helpful and they're just kind of, they kind of go overboard and need to like kind of reassess themselves and go, hmm. I don't need to know that questions you know the answer to that question where am i where's my client you know how am i going to respond to their needs versus my need for curiosity my need to try to say oh i get you i get you so yeah it's it's a good question
0: yeah so being like this maybe over ambitious ally type of person <laughs> um yeah i think that's a great thing to, to draw out is yeah um, how that enthusiasm can sometimes cross the line into harm. And, um, you know, I think that advocates or programs who are maybe thinking about some of these practices that they can do or some programs that they can offer that we've been talking about throughout this conversation, you know, a really important piece of all of that is how do trans men and trans masculine folks in a community um, hear about that program or um, get the message that these services that are offered at the, at the uh, sexual assault center are relevant to them. So how are, how are some of those, um, what are some of those ways that trans men and trans masculine survivors might, might get those messages, might hear that the center is available to them and, and that, um, that the staff is um, able to, to serve them um, at their center? How might they find that out?
1: Good question again. You have lots of good questions. Um, so, I think when we look at things, um, this is another example of why it's really good to have best practices in place. And some of those best practices are things that a survivor might not really see but might be able to feel. So, you know, if we are picking up the phone and we're doing crisis work, or whether we're picking up the phone to do, like, let's set up an appointment with somebody when we introduce ourselves to somebody, do we say my name is this and my pronouns are this and would you like to share yours? If we do that with everybody, right, that's a best practice. That's gonna really tip a trans man off to like, oh, well, they might get, they might get me here. They might welcome who I am in my totality in this space um if we have providers that you know do support groups and everybody shares their name and their pronouns you know is that another best practice sure it is how does that feel so like you know that's presuming that somebody's already in the door but you know we know that a lot of times trans people will access services they'll access at one time and they'll go this is these people do not understand me i'm not i'm not going to invest more of my time and energy this is too hard and so they'll leave. So, you know, they make it in the door, let's make sure that they they stay in that door. Um, we just talked about this a little bit about, you know, the, the asking the curious questions. So, you know, best practice too is like, don't ask curious questions. Do you really need to know that information about somebody? No, I don't think you really do. So like, you know, when people are curious about, well, have you had the surgery? Well, first of all, there isn't a surgery that goes with the surgery. And it's none of your business, right? So we we need to put our, our hat on of like, well, would I ask that to anybody else? And then think about how how or why am I asking that to this trans person that's in front of me? So some of those best practices really go a long way in terms of how we can create an environment that is aware and friendly, and all of those good things.
0: yeah, I'm thinking about um, like how how someone might even find out in the first place that a sexual assault center is the type of place that they might even go, that it's even an option um, that that the services are relevant like are there are there um ways in which someone might hear about the center and its work um, that says hey we are um a place that serves everyone uh, people of all genders and um, that sexual assault and harassment um, are things that um, happen to people regardless of gender they're they're issues for um for all of us and we're we're here to do that work are there are there ways that Are there like avenues of reaching um, trans men in local communities that you can think of that might be particularly useful for programs to know about?
1: Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things. So one is really where are agencies advertising? And I don't necessarily mean paid advertisement, but are agencies reaching out to places where trans people might congregate, where trans people might be, you know, reading a zine or a publication or a website? where where is that outreach being done to? How is it being done? Um, are the images used in that outreach? women only? you know, how do, how all of those best practices again with how is information literally going out to the world? So trans people are going to see it if it's out in the world. And what's really important what we know about is that it, it's important to be explicit in who's included. So rather than saying, you know, all genders are included or everyone is welcome here it's really critically important to list out you know trans men are welcome here or um, people of all gender identities and gender expressions are welcome here so to really state those things really clearly um will go a farther distance than just saying oh everybody's everybody can come in um we know too that agencies that do specific outreach to trans groups to LGBT community centers or other LGBT groups, if there's no trans-specific groups in in somebody's area, it's really important to develop those relationships and those alliances because trans communities are usually tight-knit. If one person knows something, they can share it with somebody else who's in need of it. So when agencies do make that personal connection with trans organizations or trans and queer organizations, it's gonna mean that those trans and queer organizations know about the sexual assault services and can share it with their their buddies, share it with their friends and have that as a resource. We also encourage folks to think about where they can partner with trans organizations. So, again, not every community is going to have a trans organization. Um, if you're in a rural community, that may not exist. But, you know, do you show up with folks and do cross trainings? Do you, you know, say, hey, I, we'd love to come and talk to your trans organization. We'd like you to come and talk to us. Let's have this mutual dialogue. And again, that can be another process of building trust, um, increasing kind of the positive reputation. And people are gonna say like, you know, hey, I know who these people are. I'm gonna be willing to go to them because of that. So the other piece of that, right, is like we can cross train, we can connect, and we can show up. And showing up is more than just training or making a phone call, but is there a pride event? And I know pride gets kind of a lot of attention, but is there a pride event? And does that sexual assault agency show up at pride? Whether it's in the parade, as a table, you know, wherever it is. Do people go to conferences and table at those conferences if they're trans-related conferences? Do people do things where there can be a mainstream presence within that trans space? Are people showing up for rallies? And I know that that's a political thing that a lot of times sexual assault agencies or individuals don't feel comfortable doing, but there's a lot of places where people, people will do that from sexual assault agencies. So where can people show up and how do trans people see that that agency is making a difference? So that's a piece of it. I think another piece is really about when somebody is thinking about accessing an agency, they may um, kind of scope out that brick and mortar place. They may see what it looks like. They may see if there's a rainbow flag in the window, if there's a window. They may kind of you know peek through the, the door and see what it physically looks like you know, are the walls painted pink? Not to be stereotypical, but like, does it feel like a place that might be welcoming of people of all genders? And again, so let's say somebody is willing to get in the door. So, you know, they're, they're still looking for things. They're still, either you know, they're calling, they're checking it out. What are their intake forms like, right? What are, what are people seeing when they get asked questions, whether it's on paper, paper or verbally? Um, what's their websites? contact form like? Does it include spaces for trans people to share their pronouns in a website contact form? So those are some of the things that I think people are going to be looking for when they're looking for an agency to, to potentially connect with. So that said, um, you know, when agencies are are open and welcoming and available to trans men and trans masculine folks, um, trans men are going to be a lot more likely to receive services, right? Because they're going to check it out, they're going to know, they're going to have some good feeling ahead of time. I did wanna point out a couple of places in particular that people may wanna try to reach out to and connect to. So the National uh, Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs is kind of this national umbrella that doesn't really house individual organizations, but people can belong to this coalition. And I think there's around 44 agencies right now, might be a little bit more than that, spread across the country. And these are LGBTQ anti-violence agencies that specifically and intentionally work with queer and trans communities. So just about every state has at least one LGBT um, anti-violence program. So if you're looking for services, you may want to call that anti-violence program in your states or in a nearby state if you're close to a border and say, hey, you know, who are the who are the cool people? Who should I go see? You know, what agencies have you had good experiences with? And they might have done the legwork for that survivor ahead of time, because they just know who's in the, in, in the world and in the, their realm. So that's one place that I think people, it's underutilized, the, the ABP chapters. Um, I think that, you know, another thing that's really happening with COVID is that it used to be that these these isolated places that would have gender-inclusive or trans-affirming groups care, pick your your, kind of service, there's more of an availability to those services now because of COVID, you know, and and we live in a world right now where it's virtual. And so people are able to, you know, live in Wisconsin where I am and access something in Washington DC, for example. So that really has opened the doors for a lot of folks. So again, that's gonna be, what are you seeing on social media? How are you connecting with your friends? What do you know and see about and what can people share with you? So if you know about a group that's really cool, share it with somebody else so that they can know that it's really cool um I, I think that there's two more things that I'd like to share in terms of like where people can can either find support or find services that are are, are overtly trans masculine welcoming trans men welcoming and I don't want to plug just one organization but I'm going to because they're cool. Um, So men healing is an organization and I'm, I'm biased because I'm on their board. But they run weekends of recovery, and they run days of recovery for men. And when they say men, they mean, anybody who identifies as a man, anybody who identifies as masculine, anybody that's in that masculine spectrum of things. And I can guarantee folks that you will have a good experience if you would like to pursue that. And I know, their cost is not a barrier for folks. So if, if a weekend of recovery, something intensive, is really where people are at in their healing, I really encourage folks to check out Men Healing um, as an organization. And the the second overt resource is Forge's resources, which is kind of you know I don't mean to self plug again, but like we we do have you know many resources that might be. Uh, Comfortable for, for trans men and trans masculine folks and feel really supportive, you know, whether it's accessing one of our larger print guides like how to access therapy and navigate some of those challenges that we talked about before, or what's a typical trauma response and understanding those those neurobiological processes that people may not understand that they're what they're feeling is normal and active um and people you know find support in connecting with forge online and social media and so it sounds really simple sometimes but like just knowing that somebody has your back that they understand a little bit about who you are can really go a long way in terms of people's healing so that was the plug but again it's you know if that's where people find support
0: and access to support
1: that's where they find it
0: that's so great thanks for all that laying all that out michael um Yeah, so often we talk about how it's great to be ready and have services um, that are are ready to work for any group of people you're talking about, but they have to know about it, too. So I think you've provided such a great um, range of of options and different ways that people can can get the word out about their programs and say, hey, we're here to support you trans men in our community. So thank you for joining us again today, Michael. And um, you joked about uh, self-promoting, but we love hearing all those resources. There's definitely no shame in doing that. We invite it. Um, And so we do invite listeners to learn more about working with male survivors by checking out links in the show notes, including links to some of the resources that Michael mentioned. Thanks for listening to this episode of resource on the go for more resources and information about understanding responding to and preventing sexual assault visit our website at www.nsvrc.org you can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org